Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. We sit down with Safe Kamisia, the head of insights and analytics at InOcean Worldwide Canada, a role where he's charged with making data-driven decisions for two of the biggest automotive manufacturers in the world, Hyundai and Kia. But his story is so much more than numbers. Born in Algeria, Safe was raised and educated in the United Kingdom, Saudi Arabia, and Malaysia. He's been on both sides of the business world, having a boss, and being his own boss during an entrepreneurial stint as the co-founder of theworldofus.com. Safe chats with us today about growing up as a globalized citizen, his unwavering passion for football in Manchester United, and how his career path and education prepared him for the challenges and opportunities in a data-centric marketing world. Essentially, my job is to build a data infrastructure, which sounds very broad, and the reason is because it is very broad, but as an organization, we're trying to move to be more of a data-driven organization, and if we're going to be able to do that, we need to have the right infrastructure, the right input of data, and the right output of data. Without going into the semantics of my day-to-day and and what that entails from technicalities, the overview really is for me to be able to make three different data-driven decisions. One is the media mix and where do we spend our dollars. Two is the creative messaging, uh, what's the right creative and what's the right value props, um, and even calls to action. And then last but not least is what's the optimal path to purchase. And in an industry like the automotive category, that's that's a long customer journey. Before we go any further, I want to go back to the beginning because out of all my guests I've had to date, I think you, sir, have lived in the most places out of anyone or more than anyone else. Four continents, have I got it right? That's right. Let's start from where you're from. Africa, uh, Algeria. So I was born there and left when I was five years old. Um, Honestly, don't remember much because since I've left Algeria, I've only gone back once ever since. My family still lives there, so I'm obviously in touch with them. But other than that, I don't really have much the, much memory of Algeria. So apart from being an Algerian citizen, it's really just kind of your birthplace more than anything else. Didn't really shape you too, you too know, much. You know what? You know what? It's, it is just my birthplace. But Algerians are very proud people in terms of their heritage. And because I've always been living in so many different countries, I'm always the outsider. I'm always the where are you from guy. So I'm obviously protective of my Algerian identity due to the reason, due to the, um, reason that I've moved around a lot. Uh, and it's for that reason that, like, I mean, if, if there was a World Cup and Algeria was qualified to it, I'd be supporting Algeria all the way. Even if know? they were playing England? Even if they were playing, even if they were playing <laughs> Canada, it would be a tough one, but I would definitely be supporting uh, Algeria. You know, I've grown up supporting Algeria. Nice segue into the next one. From Algeria, your family relocated to where? Sheffield. Sheffield, England. So Europe, that's continent number two. And uh, basically during that time, it wasn't a really good time in Algeria. We were going through a a tough civil war. We had, I think, 200,000 people that died in the span of 10 years. And um, my dad was a super intelligent guy. He was one of the top 10 students in the country. And he got a grant to study his PhD in electronic engineering, kept it until he had three kids. And then he said, okay, this is the time for us to go. We're going to, you know, I want you guys to have a better future. So we moved to Sheffield. I was there for about six years. So your first memories then of a child really go back to your time in Sheffield. Yeah, that's where it all started. What is it about England that makes you remember certain parts of your childhood? Like what stories there, what experiences? So as a kid and you move to a completely new environment, it's terrifying. 
you know, you've got a completely new place and you can't speak a single word. Oh, because that's you know, right. You were raised speaking Arabic, right? That's right. Yeah. So you didn't know English until you moved to England. Or sorry, you didn't yeah. learn English until you moved over there. Yeah, pretty much. I just learned how to speak Arabic. And now, all of a sudden, you've got to go to a new country and learn to speak a completely new language. And you have to relearn the alphabet, everything. Yeah. And plus, you, as like as a kid, you know, my family was huge. I, my, my mom has 13 siblings. My dad has five siblings. Oh, wow. So I've got like over 50 cousins. So even as growing up, as a kid, you've you've got all of that around you, and suddenly it's gone. So, you've got to learn to how you've got to learn to adapt. And one of the ways that I found adapting the one of the things that I found helped me adapt was soccer, and that's how how I started falling in love with soccer. Because uh, you know we'd uh, we'd be in school, and then we'd go outside, and everybody would be playing soccer, or as we call it, their football. You didn't need to speak English for that. And uh, that was kind of my escape. It was kind of my way to integrating with people and finding new friends. And then it didn't take me long before I started speaking English. Sports the universal language. Yeah, yeah, sports is the universal language. Yeah. Tell us about your academic time there as well, because you mentioned you were kind of what we call in Canada an ESL or English as a second language student. I mean, how did you adapt to that? Yeah, you know, when you're, when you're younger, right? I feel like when you, before you're 10 years old, your mind's a sponge in a way that it just, you learn everything really, really fast. I think it took me about three months. I remember, I remember my mom telling us this. Three months later, I had forgotten Arabic and I could only speak English. I mean, I was, I was like five to six years old when I was there. So it didn't take me long to, to learn the language. I adapted it very fast. But Sheffield in itself is a pretty academic city. So we've got two universities over there. And like I said, my dad was doing his, his electronic engineering PhD. My mom was doing her master's in linguistics. So I come from an academic family. So it was important to us. Okay, so you've got academic parents. What kind of student were you? Oh, I was a bad student. <laughs> <laughs> I was a bad student. Like my, my two brothers were really good at school. But the thing with me was I was really bad with my marks, but I was also uh, the hardest working student. So I, everybody got along with me very well. I was always, I was always Mr. Social. But uh, I'd get myself into a lot of trouble at school, which was, which was one of the key issues. But when it mattered the most, which was the final exams, that was always my forte. Final exams, I'd do very well. But everything else leading up to that, up to the year, I was, I was a very bad student. And that continued on for the rest of my life, even through to university. See, that's where you and I are opposites. Really? I, exams, I always buckled under the pressure. And I knew that I had to work twice as hard on my essays and my assignments because yeah. the exams were always going to hit me hard. Preparate, I can't do anything without preparation. Yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. my way. My brother's the exact same as you. He's the same. He cannot do last minute. He, like, he would... Uh, call in sick or, or, or he'll do anything to tell you I can't do anything this last minute <laughs> but uh, I'm, yeah I'm the opposite of that. but from there though you were having a great time in England but then the family moved to Saudi Arabia so my dad finished his PhD it was inevitable that he was going to do that the whole family was devastated that we had to leave Sheffield because we really loved it there uh, particularly me and my older brother because we were convinced we were going to be soccer players I was convinced I was going to be the best soccer player in the world <laughs> hands down imagined it in my head I still believe that I could have been and then my dad uh, looked for a job. You know, he had to support the family, and he had to look for a full-time job. He applied for jobs all around the world, all around the world for for universities that he could uh, teach in. And then the one that came through with a really good contract with uh, was Saudi Arabia. And you know, in the Gulf and Saudi Arabia during that time, that's kind of how they lured in talent from outside of Saudi Arabia. So you know, they lure you in with a lot of cash, and then. Uh, and the next thing you know, you're stuck there. I mean, there are a lot of growth opportunities, let's be honest. So, what in Saudi Arabia? In Saudi Arabia, I imagine the economy. No growth was opportunities, no. forget it, man. If you're not Saudi Arabian, forget it. You really? Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so, like when my dad came in and then he was getting paid a good pay, 
During the 10 years that he was there, the cost of living increased. Saudi Arabians were getting ridiculous 25-50% pay increases, but all foreigners were getting nothing. Then why would they even lure in a foreigner to come do that job and rather than not just give it to a local if they're going to do that? I guess because maybe they don't I just have the talent. The they don't, I think one, one, they don't have the talent. And then two, during the time they had King Fahd, who's trying to open up the country a little bit because the nature of Saudi Arabia is very tribalist in their nature. Yeah, and, I've heard that. Uh, so, you know, I think they wanted to change that a little bit and expand it, especially with them getting heavily involved with diplomatic affairs with, with the Middle East and, and the U.S. and oil and everything else. So I think they needed to have a little bit more exposure to the world. But after seven years in Saudi Arabia, you moved again. Where did you land? I went to Malaysia. And uh, I was about 17 at the time. I just turned 17. I'd lived for about six years in Saudi Arabia, and uh, frankly, I'd had enough with that country. I uh, wasn't treated very fairly, as most foreigners weren't. I decided I want to move uh, to the other side of the world. I'd gone to Malaysia on vacation the summer before, so um, I was like, you know, I need somewhere new to go. I wanted to go to Europe uh, so I could kick off my football career, both <laughs> me and my brother. But then uh, it was just slightly after September 11th, so anybody coming out of Saudi Arabia was on a hold. Um, so they put me on hold for a year and a half, and then I was like, no, I can't wait in the morning to get the hell out of here. So when you said they put you on hold, because I don't think a lot of people know about this, what exactly does that mean? There's a saying we have in the Middle East, they say when those tw two Twin Towers came down, all of our dreams and hopes came down with them. Oh, jeez. There's a lot of middle people from the Middle East who, who studied and you know wanted a better living for them and for their, and for their future gen generation abroad. And then as those... Towers came down, and then within half an hour, they said it was Al Qaeda and it was Muslim terrorists. We all felt the same. For us, it was like, all right, now we're about to be painted with the same brush, and they've ruined it for all of us. So, just like that, then going to Europe, that dream kind of collapsed. Then. Okay, it collapsed, and then, uh, and that's why there was a big influx of people that were going to Malaysia and Singapore and uh, Hong Kong. So, uh, people stopped going to um, the West and switched to the East. Okay, so tell us about your time in Malaysia. Malaysia was good at uh, the time that I was there. I went and studied the University of East London program where they have satellite programs that they do all around the world. Uh, it was great because I got the same level of education as University of uh, East London, but I didn't have to be there. Um, the course was absolutely brilliant. I thought, in my opinion, I don't think I could have studied anything that fitted my personality more. And uh, the reason I liked it was because um, there was no black or white answers for my program. It was always a great answer. It was always about how well you could put your argument together. And we covered things like machine versus men and uh, should a company downsize people to replace them with technology. That's still a hot topic till today. That's so a very hot very, topic very now. Applicable. You hear that all the time now, especially at the retail level. Anytime a grocery store takes away a person, puts in a self-checkout lane. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing it there. But then there's, there's something to be said around the jobs that technology creates as well. Uh, so it's a two-sided argument. Yes, uh, you're not having the same people in the grocery lane that are going to be checking you, but you're still going to need engineers to fix it. You're still going to need uh, people to do other jobs. And then let's, let's bring this back to our industry. Like our industry, for example, I'm a strong believer that 70% of our job should be automated. And I'm, that doesn't mean that I'm saying that we should fire 75% of the people in the agency. I'm saying that there's other things that they should be working on. Nobody, Victor, I, I know nobody that joined an, an agency to work on bloody Excel sheets all day long. Nobody did, especially not a creative agency. No, it's all about storyboards and all of the really impressive visuals and brainstorm sessions and then getting to know the client and the product. No, it, it's not all 
no one ever thought it would be all Excel, Excel spreadsheets, but it's yeah. turned out that way. And a lot of that could be and should be automated. Uh, so I found that topic very relevant to me today. You know, and another topic that we had was around the ethics of business, business ethics. So what's the purpose of a business? Is it to create more profit- profitability or is it to take care of a community? So in that case, is it, uh, am I supposed to, as, as if, I, if I opened up a company here and then I went and employed 200 people in Toronto and I gave them jobs, I'm already doing you know, a big favor to the community. But then what if I decide they're not important to me in terms of giving back to the community? The, st- the shareholders are the ones that are more important to me and I should be prioritizing them. And then, you know, come 10 years later, I decide, you know, with 2,000 people, I decide to shut it all down because it's easier for me to use remote satellite offices in India or whatever that is. Is that a bad decision or a good decision, you know? But your time in Malaysia was also finite. And from there, the family packed up and they moved to Canada and of all places, Ottawa, the capital city. What brought everyone to Ottawa? Yeah, so when I was in Malaysia, I went there alone. I didn't mention that earlier in the interview, but when I was 17, I left to Malaysia alone. So... My family, who was in Saudi Arabia at the time, um, decided that they wanted to leave and they wanted to go to Canada. My, my dad had actually been wanting to go to Canada for a very long time. And then he applied for immigration status for the entire family, and then we received it in 2008. So I came back in 2008 with the rest of my family. And basically, the only reason I did that was to come and, and you know get my permanent residency card and then decide whether I wanted to stay or not, knowing that within the first five years, I only had to be here for three so I thought, you know, I'll come pick up my card, I'll go back to Malaysia for two more years and then decide whether I wanted to stay. Um, and that's what I did. I came and decided that I wanted to get a little bit more working experience, went back to Malaysia. And then um, I came back and said, you know what, I'm going to give Canada a try and, and see if I can uh, climatize myself here. And uh, next thing you know, I love it here. And uh, I'm a Canadian and Canada all the way. Let's take a step back and talk about your passions and your role models. You've already alluded to it. What's your interest? What is your big interest or passion? My biggest passion is soccer, 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 all the way. I love soccer. Um, I'm very, very happy. Shout out to TFC uh, two <laughs> days true. ago. Yes, just won right. the uh, MLS Cup. The parade time. was today? Yeah, sorry? The parade was today? Yeah, the parade was today. I wish I could have been there for it. It was perfect with the snow, too. It was like Santa Claus Parade, but with TFC. With TFC on yeah. the double-decker buses. Very English for them to do that. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, so soccer was always, always my passion as, uh, as a, a player, but it also became a source of influence, source of uh, inspiration for me. So I naturally looked up to soccer players as my hero. So my biggest hero growing up was Eric Cantona. And uh, the reason I loved him was because of his story. And his story was he was always the outcast. He was always the one that was the troublemaker that was getting kicked out from one place to another. But all he ever needed was someone to give him a chance. All he ever needed was someone to recognize his talent and understand where his passion was coming from and help him control that. And uh, he played in France, and then he got kicked out of Marseille, I think, or some other French team for, uh, I think he headbutted his teammate or something or punched <laughs> somebody else, which I'm not saying it's a great thing to do, but I'm sure there was reasons behind it. But he was a very, very talented player. So they kicked him out of France. They kicked him out of the French national team. And then uh, he went to Sheffield Wednesday. And uh, when I was living there in Sheffield, I had the opportunity to go for one of the training sessions. And I looked and I was like, who is that tall French guy? Um, and I just, I really, really liked his aura. He had an aura about him whenever he... He was present. You could feel Eric Cantona's presence, similar to how Zlatan Ibrahimovic has that presence. He's today. got quite the presence. Yeah, as soon as he's, he's, he's there, it's the whole focus is on him. And he had that right from a training session that I, that I went to. And then um, Sheffield Wednesday couldn't deal with him, so they kicked him out because he said he had an attitude problem after a month with the club. Then he went to Leeds. 
he did well at Leeds, but then got kicked out of there for about, for about after two or three months. And then, Which is funny because Leeds has a history of dealing with really tough players, especially in the 70s and the early 80s. So he only, he only lasted a short time in Leeds. Yeah, which shows you how tough of a character this guy is to deal with. And then there was only one person that could deal with him, and that was the great Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> Can't forget so, the sir. Yeah, he isn't, forget the he's sir. been he knighted. Earned he earned the sir. Uh, so Sir Alex Ferguson said, that's my guy. And uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, before that, had been a Manchester United for about four or five years. He hadn't won a title yet, but he was making big changes with Manchester United. Eric Cantona came in, and they won, I think it was, seven of the nine championships during that nine-year period that Eric Cantona was with them. Uh, the other two years, they came second and lost by point. And Eric Cantona was by far the catalyst of that entire um, movement of Manchester United uh, being the greatest club that it is today. And all it is is because Ferguson, or we'll call him Fergie because that's what everyone else calls him, saw something in Yep. Give him the right opportunity. Yeah, Fergie saw him. He gave him the right opportunity. And even when it got tough, after they won the first two leagues, there was one game against Crystal Palace. And I remember that game. I was watching it live. He got red carded. And then as he was walking off, one of the fans was swearing at him. So he goes and does a karate kick, <laughs> like a kung fu karate kick on one of the fans. And people are like, this guy is crazy. So he got an eight-month ban for that. And any other club, you do that, you're out. You yeah, know? they cut you loose, especially nowadays yeah. too. Yeah, the, the PR pressure or Absolutely. the public pressure, you'd yeah, be gone. Well, uh, it just happened recently to Patrice Evra. Even though he's an idiot, he kicked his own fan. At least Eric Cantona kicked an opposing <laughs> fan who was who was um, claiming uh, like he was he was very racist to him, uh, you know, calling him French, whatever. But uh, Alex Ferguson stood by him. Eight months later, Eric Cantona came back. And it was a massive celebration in Old Trafford for every Manchester United fan around the world. And uh, he just catapulted us through five, uh, five years in a row of championship galore. Is that how you see yourself a little bit too? Because you mentioned earlier on that you were a bit of a mischief maker growing up at school. Is that yeah. what you see in yourself too, is just the right opportunity and you run with it? That's how, that's how I see myself aspiring to be. I can <laughs> never be as, uh, as uh, present as Eric Cantona is when he walks into a room, I don't think. Although, but that to me is why I aspire to be. But yeah, in, in terms of just uh, you know, sticking to your guns, knowing that some people are not going to understand uh, your methods. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not a violent person in nature, except for recently I had to go and fight in agency wars. You know, tell us about that for a second, agency wars. You dropped that in there. Yeah, yeah. First off, what's agency wars to anyone listening? Because okay, it sounds yes. pretty brutal just on top, but it's it's actually a pretty big charitable cause in the Toronto uh, media world. The, the rumor has it that it started eight years ago when vendors said, hey, we want to have a chance to get into a boxing ring with agencies. <laughs> and just, just take out the frustration, take it all out. And then they broke them up into two teams, a vendor team versus an agency team. And the clients started getting involved. So it was just client versus supplier teams. But then afterwards, they kind of changed the format. And now it's basically anybody who's working in advertising and marketing can go through this two-week process where they get uh, evaluated and then selected. And then uh, the people who get selected go through a rigorous three-month uh, training program six days a week so you um, were learning boxing from scratch then you had absolutely scratch. you had to be scratch. so if you had fought before you're not allowed to participate like even if you had light martial arts experience uh, as long as you've sparred before okay as long as you've sparred like if you had the training that's fine but they're also going to match you with somebody that's had similar training 
people that we know that went through the training with us that didn't get selected mainly because they already had sparring experience so they had a little bit too much experience in terms of martial arts so yeah so everybody's equal and then they take us through three months and in the last month they choose who your partner is my partner was uh evan powell shout out to evan powell from touche yeah we got into a ring and uh, beat each other up yeah <laughs> it was a hell of a night though and it was definitely the best experience I've ever had in my life. I have never gotten so cheered on in my life. Uh, it was all for a charity cause. So at the end of the day, whether you won or not, you still felt like you won. We raised $50,000 uh, for charity. And to put that into perspective, the seven years before us combined raised 125000 Our year alone raised $50,000. That's incredible. So, yeah. So, you know, we were all winners. You know, we, we did a really, really great job. And... Uh, the bond that I've created uh, with uh, the friendships, the new friendships I've had with my team, or you know, I'll never forget them. They're always going to be everlasting. I feel like uh, it's been an experience where not only have I created new friends, uh, but also have uh, a gold medal that I can always look back and uh, say, yes, uh, I won one fight, and now it's time to retire undefeated. Want to know, baby? Want to know? What was your first ever job? My first ever job was a startup that I started up. Uh, it was in my last year at university, and uh, me and a friend of mine called Botan Vagi, uh, a Danish guy who was now in Denmark running a green energy company, we said, you know what, no, something here doesn't make sense. We're learning about marketing, and Philip Kotler is talking about the four Ps, uh, very, very outdated. And we, we had some really, really good discussions about how digital was going to transform marketing, and we felt like you could foresee that. You could foresee there was, there was internet penetration was increasing. You know, broadband was there. A mobile phone internet wasn't there yet, but you could see there was a rapid movement that was going on. So we decided, you know, well, if we're going to start a business, maybe a low barrier to entry would be create a website. So um, we created a niche social networking website uh, in Malaysia. And the website was catered towards nightlife and um, sports. So it's basically catered towards uh, people who are in the university age group. And uh, we earned money through subscriptions. So a lot of the clubs that were having events, they would sell the tickets through our website or through the subscriptions. Um, we, it was, at the time, it was, a f it was a race for features. So you had Friendster, MySpace, Beidou, and all of those old school websites. And honestly, I shit you not, it was like... The, one day, friends that would have winkies where you can wink at somebody as opposed to just send them a text message. And then MySpace would create a new feature where you can customize your background. And those were considered revolutionary at the time. Wow, this is amazing what you can do with social networks. Facebook came along and said, you know what? Instead of us having this development race of who can create the best features for one website, we're going to create something called applications and basically allow people to create whatever the hell they want. So now, now it's not about customi customi customizing the layout of your pay or profile. Now you've got uh, you know Angry Birds and a lot of other apps, the poking apps, etc. That you can words download. with friends, all of that. Words with friends, etc. Yeah. So that kind of blew everybody else out of the water because now you're not only on this website to check what everybody else is up to, what uh, they posted recently, but you're there to start interaction, interacting with friends, and that really took it to the next level. And as a, uh, a consequence, everybody lost their traffic almost overnight, and we were one of those small, small, small players that lost uh, money overnight. But we did well for about two years. We did, we did well. We, we had positive cash flow, 
Um, but then when uh, traffic is your currency, when traffic starts dropping, you've still got to pay journalists, you've got to pay developers, you know, you've got to pay programmers and uh, photographers. It takes its toll on you, and then there's only so much money you can lose before you start ripping your hair out and saying, okay, I've got to do something about this. So, How old were you? I was about 22. So 22, you started your very first company, and yeah. then I guess around 24, 25, is that when you had to call it quits with it because of Facebook or because of competition from other social media sites? It's about 24 and I had to call it quit. But I always, I always like to say that it wasn't because of Facebook that the company died. I think the company died because of our lack of ability to foresee it, our lack of experience and knowledge in the market marketplace to know such a thing was coming. I still think we could have reshifted our model and focused it more uh, on the event space because we had a really strong network there when it came to events. So had we gone more social, more niche towards something that we really liked, which was futsal, which is indoor soccer in Malaysia. Okay. I think we could, have, we could have done a lot more of that angle, but we didn't have the business know-how to really navigate around that. Looking back on that now, does that now give you a new appreciation for new ideas? Because in this industry, someone's always coming up with something new, and anytime something new is presented, there's always a room full of people that are quick to kill it. Yeah. I tell one story years ago when I was working back at, at CBC, one of the uh, TV reps there who was close to moving on. He was, he was close to retiring. He'd been there forever. He saw me on YouTube and this was after YouTube had been bought by Google and integrated. And he goes, do you really think this is going to catch on? It's kind of that herd mentality where people don't think that anything new can usurp them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you find now that based on your experience, you're always looking at new things going, maybe this might not work, but let's try giving it a chance. Who knows how they could pivot and change a year from now? Yeah. I think, um, I think what you're talking about is risk and a lot of people are afraid to take risk. A lot of people are naturally skeptical towards something new because they think it's a risk. I mean, I remember those days of YouTube. I remember when social media was just a fad. I remember when mobile wasn't really going to pick up because it wouldn't have the right penetration. I remember when high-speed internet wasn't going to pick up because wouldn't ha people wouldn't be able to afford it. Remember when BlackBerry claimed no one's going to use a touchscreen phone? They're not going right, to type on that's that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think there are so many things that have happened over the last five to ten years that I dare not and nobody else really dares um, to expect what the next big thing is going to be. So I think people are becoming less resistant to new ideas uh, as more and more new ideas pop out. Uh, I think a lot of us, I mean, I'm, I've been guilty myself of shutting down new ideas. I've been guilty myself of saying things of that. I mean, who, who would have thought that the biggest YouTube um, following on, on, on YouTube is people watching other people play video games who would have thought i still can't fathom it i still can't fathom it you know but that at the end of the day that's the, that's why i love data that's exactly why i've chosen to be where i am today in my career after losing so much money and you know you're you see you see a company bleeding cash you know it's you, it's natural that you start becoming more roi centric and thinking about okay i need to look at the numbers i need to i need to have proof how do i mitigate my risk uh, when it comes to predicting what's going to have a strong impact and, and that's the reason i'm doing what i do today is because i lost all of that money after the world of us.com where did you move on to there was an ad network that was selling ads on our website they had an IO for us, and then they tried to reach me and said, hey, what happened to your website? It's off. We're like, we, we, you know, we have a client for you. And then I told them, well, hey, we shut it down because we don't have any more traffic. So I don't know why you're selling our website if we don't have any traffic. So they said, you know, hey, you know, we really liked you guys. We really liked working with you. At the time, Inity was the biggest ad network in Malaysia. They were the number one in the market. And uh, they had a very ambitious um, CEO, Fabian Lua. And Fabian said he wants to expand 
and he needs to hire people that are going to help him expand. And he's not going to expand with his current people, and these people are going to think bigger. So he brought me on board to help him grow into new markets. So I was basically leading the business development and new business pitches in Singapore, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Thailand. Uh, and then eventually I narrowed down to taking care of uh, Singapore and Jakarta, which is the Indonesian markets. So I worked with them for about three years, and you know we really helped them grow. And earlier when I mentioned to you that I came to Canada and then decided I wanted to go back for two years, it was because I had this experience to work on uh, you know regional accounts and regional new business development. So I did that for, for three years, and yeah, that was the reason I left the world, the world it was. Two questions to that. The first one is, was it difficult to have a boss again after being your own boss for two years? And a follow-up to that, working on all of those different markets, different cultures, was that difficult as well? Because, I mean, when you come to Canada and you work on business in Canada, you've really got – pretty much you've got English Canada and French Canada. They've got their differences, but they've got their similarities. But i got to imagine Vietnam is different from Indonesia, from Singapore, different languages and so forth. Yeah, uh, to answer your first question about having a boss, no, because it, exactly, it was exactly what I needed. You know, at the end of the day, I was still a young guy, and I went and did it on my own. I lost a lot of money. I needed to have leadership, and to be working with an entrepreneurship company like Inity, where the founders themselves, uh, three founders, had had started the company from scratch and had gotten to a point where they employed 50 people. Today they have over 500 people across seven different countries. I needed to learn from them. And I needed to. I needed some kind of mentorship uh, to get me ready for my career. So you saw it as another education you were getting, not just Absolutely. another job. Absolutely. I'm still learning every day. You know, I'm getting free education every day from people around me. So for me, it was, it was necessary. It was necessary. I don't know what I don't know. And I needed to, to um, work under somebody who knew what I didn't know. So that was a, it was a very good experience. And I, I, I wouldn't change it any other way. I wouldn't have it any other way. But as it, when, when it pertains to your second question about moving to different places, that was my forte. I, I've, I've lived in so many different countries. I had already lived in three different, four different countries by then. So for me, moving around was second nature. I have no problem adapting to new scenarios. So from one angle, it was, I was also kind of the, um, the ideal hire for them as well, someone that wasn't going to be afraid of going to a new country. Uh, and mind you, even though they're all different, they all speak English, so English is still the language of commerce there. Okay. So I never really had a difficulty when it came to communication at all. Um, and uh, I adapted, like living in Malaysia for, for that long, I adapted a lot of the understanding of the Chinese culture and the Malay culture and the Indian culture. Uh, Malaysia in itself is very diverse, so it wasn't a problem for me. But yes, they were very, very different. And then from there, that's when you made the decision to move back to Canada permanently. You landed in Ottawa and Bluemax.ca. Yeah, that's right. I was done. I was done with Malaysia. Those three years really burned me out. Um, you know, there's a lot of traveling, a lot of a lot of work. I think, I, I think my last year I burned through three different passports because of how many stamps that I had every time oh, it's come, coming in and out. Yeah, because especially the Indonesian one that every time you come in they take a whole page, and every time you come out they take a whole page. But then I decided that's it. It's time. It's time to go. My family was here in uh, Canada, and they were in Ottawa. So uh, I went there, and the first few months were kind of tough. I couldn't get really get a job. Um, I had a lot of discouragement. People telling me, "Hey, uh, you're never going to find a job like you had in Malaysia. You know, you should be a taxi driver, or try and get a license for a security guard, or just go and work at Tim Hortons and apply for jobs there." Uh, my response was always, "Over my dead body, that's never going to happen. I'm here to work, so I'm going to work." And then uh, I continued and applied and applied and applied. Everybody said no to me because I didn't have any um, 
Canadian working experience. But then Bluemex said yes. So Bluemex.ca for reference is Canada's largest online florist. And the reason I wanted to go into e-commerce is because of my passion for ROI and my passion for attribution with the experience that I had gone through having my own company. And uh, uh, when I went in there, kind of the expectation at the beginning was, hey, come in and manage our AdWords account. Mind you, I had known nothing about AdWords before that. Uh, I've had used... Uh, uh, AdSense before, which is now called uh, Google Display Network or DBM. Uh, so I came in, learned how to use AdWords, and as I was using it, I was capturing all the lower funnel stuff, all the good stuff. Um, and then as I expanded into it, I realized I was constrained by some of the uh, images of the products that we had on the website. So I started learning how to Photoshop and take pictures myself of the flowers and, and in, in vases. When, and uh, as we were collecting emails, we had over 100,000 emails. I, I started developing the CRM aspect to it. Um, and then I went and kicked off the display and retargeting campaigns as well. So there was a lot of test and learn that we did. It sounds like you had a lot of freedom. Every time you stumbled upon yeah. a problem, they gave you the freedom to do whatever needed to be done to fix it. Well, that was a solution. so. That was that's the nature of of entrepreneurship companies. I find the only thing is, as long as they, as they see results, because they have very low threshold for risk. So if they see results coming in, then you know they're willing to let you continue doing uh, something new, or else they'd rather have you focus on the same thing. So our results went and improved from a ten percent conversion rate to a twenty percent conversion rate, which is essentially doubling the ROI of the media spend. Uh, and a lot of it just made sense. So yes, they, they did give me the freedom, but a lot of it was because I was very transparent with them about the, the tests that we were doing and, and the insights that we got out of it. We never did anything unless there was a hypothesis around how it was going to improve the results. And you know, looking back, you know, as I'm saying this right now, I'm talking about something that was like six, seven years ago, and I still wish that a lot of clients would be doing this today. Um, you know, we don't see as much aggressive optimization as you would see in uh, the smaller e-commerce shop. But from there, you moved on to homesav.com. So homesav was featured on Dragon's Den just before I got there. And essentially, they are a, they're in a flash sales type of website. So the Groupons of the world. So it was during that boom of, of, of Groupon and Find Deal and all the other different websites that were out there. And uh, they specialize in home decor. So I really desperately wanted to move to Toronto. After working at Bluemax for um, over a year, almost a year and a half, reached my plateau there. I was like, you know, I need to get back to the agency world. I want to work more than one client. I need to have options. I need to go to Toronto. And as I applied for jobs here, one of them, the job that came through was a job with HomeSav. So I came in and basically same thing. I managed their Google AdWords and managed their website, but it's not the same as flowers. They don't sell as quickly as that. So it was very much dependent on the conversion rate of the email. So what we did was I built an army of interns, so which eventually came down to two key interns that I was working with. One of them managed landing page development. Another one managed all of my media campaign executions. And then we had a creative team that was supporting us. And we were basically just plowing through A-B tests for lunch, uh, breakfast, and dinner. So uh, as we did that, we significantly improved the conversion rate of emails. We went something, uh, I believe, from below 10% to plowing 35% uh, over the period of six to seven months of rigorous optimization. Uh, so that was a great experience for me because it's very different to what I knew from Bluemix in the sense that 
the purchase doesn't happen immediately, so you need to develop different tactics. But it also starts making you think about the customer journey. So, you know, I can sit down and talk to the most experienced person in digital, but just because you have so much experience in digital doesn't mean that you, you have so much experience in my business. And I think that's something that I don't see that often. So even even when it comes to right now, I'm working at Inotion and we sell cars and cars have a 70-day purchase cycle or customer journey. When I was at Mediacom, I was working on CIBC. It takes 7 to 14 days for someone to buy a credit card. You're going to de- develop two completely different tactics for that. And I think that's something that has to be taken for account when you're talking about media plans and media tactics. From there, though, you made your first foray into the media agency world. Uh, what brought you to Henderson Boscon? Oh, Henderson Boscon was a blast. So what happened was, I was yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I was really desperate to get into an agency. So I met Erin uh, Ran. Shout out to Erin Ran. When we, I met her somewhere, and then she said that, "Hey, you know, we're looking for someone who has experience in search uh, because you know they had someone that was leaving." So I told her, "Yeah, I could do search. I've done search and many other things, but I'll come in and take it." And uh, they hired me for uh, to work in the Mercedes account. A few months later, we got purchased by Kenna. As that takeover happened, you know, we started getting a little turbulent. Erin left, and as she left, she kind of hand, handed me the keys to the department. So she went and told upper management, you know, this guy's a search guy, but he knows a lot more than search. During the three months that her and I overlapped, she gave me display, she gave me social. Uh, she asked them not to hire anybody to replace her and to give me enough room uh, to go over and take that position. So That's so awesome when you have someone have your back like that. Absolutely. I know she's, she's, she's always been a mentor for me in my career here in Toronto. So she's taking, she, she's taking care of me. And, and sometimes... Like Eric Cantona, you just need someone to open the door for you, you know, and you know that once that door is open, you're going to come in and you'll, you'll do the job. For that reason, I'm a pass, pass it forward type of person. So I'm always constantly trying to give opportunities to people uh, that really want it. And the one thing I always look out for is for go-getters, you know, for, for a go-getter, all you have to do is open the door for them and they'll go and get it for you. Uh, so, yeah, so that was my experience over at Henderson Baskan and I worked on a few other clients. But then what happened was uh, when Kenna came over, they were a technology and data company. So the, we've got a creative company and a data and technology company merging together. And to me, that only smelled opportunity, and that's what, exactly what it brought with. So I went, I went from sitting down, working on search campaigns, and then taking on display and social, to sitting down in a room talking about user experience, talking about CRM, talking about solutions engineering and content development and database management. So I learned a lot more. So it was almost like I was taking one big circle where – you know, I started off with all of these uh, skill sets around the development and data and technology, kind of steered into more marketing and advertising and creative, and then there was this optimization piece, and then it was kind of all brought back together during my time at Kenner. What brought you to Mediacom? I was at Kenner for about three years. Uh, I was kind of looking for a new challenge at the time. I did miss being more involved with media because when I started off at Henderson Baskan, I basically took over the media department. As we got bought by Kenna, it was the media and data department. But then uh, we slowly started losing all of our media clients. Uh, the media business to other bigger media agencies, you know, decided, hey, you know, I think it's time for me to, to jump ship and go to a bigger agency just for the sake of getting that right experience for myself. And uh, Mediacom came and knocked on my door and said, hey, we've got a role for business science and we think you're the perfect candidate. It made a lot of sense for me at the time. I was like, you know, Mediacom's a big agency, so I'm going to get exposure on a lot more clients that I'm looking for. Also, I hadn't worked for a big tier 
agency like that. So I wanted to prove myself because I was always the, had that rebellious attitude that these guys are too big. They don't know what to do. They're, you know, they're fat cats. They're going to move really slow. They're not used to being small and nimble. So I thought it was a perfect challenge for me. But when the recruiter approached you at Mediacom, you did something interesting. You pushed it back to the recruiter and said, I don't think you're asking the right questions for the right person. Tell us that story because that was really yeah. interesting that you took that initiative and pushed back on it. Yeah, I take a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of pride in that recruitment process. So what happened was the recruiter came to me and she said, you know, we're, we're interested in you, we think you're the perfect candidate. So I asked her to send me the job description and she sent it. And the job description was the most complicated job description I had ever read. I did not know whether they were trying to hire a business science uh, specialist or a hardcore developer of statistical codes because there was a lot of um, technicalities in there. So after reading through it, I, you know, I told the recruiter, listen, I don't think you're, uh, you're looking for the right person or you're just looking for the wrong talent. So yeah, she asked me to elaborate, and I told her, "Listen, like based on everything that I've read here, what you're looking for is somebody that's gonna that's basically had four or five years working experience, sitting behind an Excel spreadsheet or sitting behind a bunch of codes. Um, if you've never worked in a campaign, how are you supposed to provide recommendations out of everything uh, that you've modeled, out of all out of all of what the data is telling you? Uh, furthermore, if you've never owned your own business, how are you supposed to grow this department and work?" on new business pitches and, and be able to collaborate with other departments. So I said that I think I, I've got the skill set that you need. I just don't think the job description has um, does does the job justice of where it should be. So she challenged me to write the job description for her, so I did. And then uh, after I'd done that, she read it, and then half an hour later she said, uh, we've notified all the other candidates that uh, the job is no longer available. We just need to go through formalities with you, and the job is yours. And, uh, and then, yeah, and then I got the job. And after Mediacom, what brought you to InOcean Worldwide Canada? The main attraction that I had for working at InOcean was that everything was under one umbrella. So uh, as I had moved to Mediacom in those three years, the uh, landscape had changed a lot, especially when it comes to the data landscape. And there was a lot of emerging technologies. There was a lot of emerging attribution models. And uh, a lot of it conflicted with the, the setup that the big media agencies had. Inotion made a lot of sense for me because over here we have in-house development, we have in-house CRM, uh, our own agency trading desk. So It literally was all the toys you were looking for. It was all the toys that I was looking for, yes, exactly. And um, in an environment where I, in, you know, I'd be the first hire for this department and when we'd grow it from scratch, so it, had, uh, it fed my entrepreneurial spirit as well. Um, so I thought you know, it, was a, it was a perfect place to go to. And also from a business perspective, one of the things that I learned most in my job at Mediacom was it doesn't matter how good your recommendations are if you don't have influence on the execution. A lot of times I found myself stuck in that bubble when you're working for a big organization that has so many different stakeholders in every decision that's made versus in Ocean where the culture is a lot more nimble. And the reason being, the, the, the key difference that we have is we're owned by the client. So there's no problem when it comes to data sharing. I have uh, more data than I could ever have asked for, more data than I need uh, over here, which is a great problem to have if you're trying to solve business problems. And you're referring to Hyundai and Kia when you say owned yes. by the client. Yes, Hyundai and Kia owners, which, uh, which means I have access to all the data that I need. You know, they're willing to invest into the right technologies if, if we have a good business case for them. We have no problem when it comes to transparency because we're all under the same umbrella. So there's a lot of good reasons why it makes a lot of sense. But the other big one for me was also, uh, you know, when you're talking about business science and making an impact on market penetration and market share, 
This isn't something that you can pay divided attention to. This is something that you need to pay full attention to because there's so many different moving pieces. And it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's not like a conversion rate that you can increase in two or three weeks or or you know, a cost per acquisition that we could reduce over two or three months. We're talking about increasing the needle on the business. This is something that takes two, three, four years to do uh, of undivided attention. So coming over here to Inosha, I feel like this is kind of the the challenge that I need right now for me to take it to the next level. You know, I've proved to myself that I can optimize uh, the uh, soft metrics, but how about the the big metrics, the business metrics? If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would it be? It would be to never ever doubt myself. You know, you've you have enough doubters that people are, of people who don't think that you're going to succeed or think that you're not going to achieve something that looks impossible. But that's where achievements come from, from challenging the status quo, from doing the impossible. So accept it and embrace it when you have an idea that people don't think is going to happen and prove them wrong and continue to do that over and over and over again. Consistency is key. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what do you think you'd be doing and why? Oh, soccer player for sure. I'd be competing with Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi for the world's best player. (laughs) I'm playing in the World Cup next year, a Russia World Cup for Algeria. Safe, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you very much. And uh, we can go outside and enjoy the snow now, maybe throw some snowballs at each other. That's it for today's show. But for more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching media people podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.